Hey guys, are you thinking about starting your own podcast? If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me give you the details. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will then distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. We're back with episode five and our second serial killer. Before we get started, I want to say a special thank you to everyone who has listened to the show in the US, the UK, Canada, Ireland, Germany, Italy, Switzerland, and New Zealand. Thank you so much for your support and listenership. It means so much to Winston and I. Today, I'm going to tell you the story of Keith Hunter Jesperson, aka the Happy Face Killer. Not to be confused with the smiley face killer, because that's a whole nother can of worms. I got most of my information from Jack Olson's book, I, The Creation of a Serial Killer, and Jack Smith's book, The Happy Face Murderer. Keith's daughter wrote a book and did a podcast about her dad, and I will link to both in the show notes for this episode if you want to learn more. Keith Hunter Jesperson was born to parents Leslie and Gladys Jesperson on April 6, 1955. He was the forgotten middle child with two older siblings and two younger siblings. The Jesperson family lived in Chilliwack, British Columbia, a rural part of Canada. Unlike the father of our last serial killer, Jerry Brudos, in episode two, Keith's dad Les spent a lot of time on his career as an engineer. Of course, putting his career first meant that he would sacrifice spending time with his wife and their five kids. The time Les did spend with his kids was tainted by his physical and psychological abuse. Keith's dad was an alcoholic, but he still demanded respect from his children. He once convinced Keith to urinate on an electric fence and then proceeded to laugh at him when Keith was shocked. Despite this abuse, 
Keith saw his father as an icon, and he described him as overpowering. Throughout his life, Keith would have a love-hate relationship with his father. He was constantly seeking his father's approval and rarely received it. In addition to the abuse inflicted on Keith, the time he spent with his father had another impact on Keith's development. Les and his father, Arthur, had incredibly negative and demeaning views of women. Arthur would insinuate on more than one occasion that women were just a waste of space. The two older Jesperson men had little to no respect for women, something they would inevitably pass on to Keith. His view of women was further complicated by the fact that his mother was raised to believe that sex and sexuality were taboo. Obviously, she didn't buy into this completely since she had five kids, but Keith's parents never talked about sex and they never explained the birds and the bees to him. In Jack Olson's book, Keith said that he started killing animals at the age of five or six. He later described his relationship with animals as complicated. Keith would go out gopher hunting with his dad, he would torture garter snakes, and he would help his dad kill any kittens that were born on their farm. Also, at the tender age of five, Keith had his first kiss in the back seat of his mom's car. He claimed he and his little friend, quote, practiced sex, unquote, which involved a lot of touching and flashing because that's what they thought sex was. Throughout his childhood, Keith was bullied a lot. His brother gave him the nickname Igor due to his size because Keith was over six feet tall. Eventually, Keith's classmates caught on to this nickname, and they began calling him Igor, too. Because of this bullying, Keith spent a lot of time in what he referred to as Keith's world. Everyone else just saw Keith as a daydreamer. Despite Keith's complicated relationship with animals, he had a brown Labrador named Duke. Keith and Duke were the best of friends. Duke slept with Keith at night and was very protective of him. As Keith grew up, his torture of animals, except for Duke, evolved. Keith attached firecrackers to sparrows and fed Alka-Seltzer to seagulls so their stomachs would explode inside their bodies. At the age of 12, Keith and his family moved to Sela, Washington. The family lived in a large home in a middle-class neighborhood. Keith didn't want to leave Canada and began spending more time in Keith's world with Duke. He daydreamed about rape and kidnapping and overpowering a smaller girl, which, given his size, was pretty much any girl or woman. In high school, Keith tried playing football, but he soon learned the coach only wanted to use him to tackle smaller players. Keith eventually quit the team after telling the coach he wasn't interested in the violent aspect of the game. Now, you might find that ironic, since Keith was perfectly fine with murdering innocent women. But in Keith's mind or at least what he likes to tell people, he had two distinct sides, the normal, gentle side and the angry side. He writes off a lot of his anger and violent behavior to being the forgotten middle child. In Keith's junior year of high school, he experienced a deep personal loss. His dog, Duke, became ill, and Keith's father, Les, shot him to, quote, put him out of his misery, unquote. Keith never forgave his father for murdering Duke. He felt Duke was killed as retribution for the torment that Keith inflicted on the other family dogs. Keith suffered yet another blow during his senior year of high school. 
He was rope climbing in gym one day when he fell from 25 feet onto the hard floor. Keith was taken to the emergency room and his left foot was never the same. He had several surgeries after being diagnosed with torn ligaments. After high school, Keith first got a job pumping gas. Then at the age of 19, he started working for his father. Around this time, Keith met 17-year-old Rose Pernick at a fast food restaurant. Despite Rose's mother's distaste for Keith, the two became engaged and they got married on August 2, 1975. The couple moved into a mobile home at Silver Spur Mobile Park, located on the estate of Keith's parents. In 1976, Keith received a settlement from his former high school for his left foot injury. The settlement was for $33,000, which is equal to a little over $150,000 today. Keith's father convinced him to invest his money in expanding the trailer park. Keith, desperate as always to please his good old dad, agreed, and the two became business partners with a 10% ownership interest for Keith. The trailer park went under two years later and had to be sold due to their money problems. Despite Keith's low sperm count and difficulty conceiving, he and Rose welcomed a daughter, who they named Melissa, in 1979, and a son, who they named Jason, shortly after in 1980. By all accounts, Keith doted on his children. He gave them the love and affection he never received as a child, and he swore he'd never lay a hand on them. In order to support his growing family, Keith took a job as a truck driver. This was hard on the family as Keith would spend majority of his time away from them, coming home only five to six days every four weeks. Keith moved his family to Canada in 1981. Rose, who was pregnant with their third child at the time, wasn't particularly thrilled about the move, which is understandable given that she was on her own for long periods of time with three young children. When Keith's mother Gladys was diagnosed with cancer, he moved his family so they could be closer to Gladys before she passed away. After his mother's passing, Keith soon realized he was no longer in love with Rose. Before he moved the family to Canada, Keith had been living the bachelor lifestyle. He flirted with waitresses and basically lived out of his truck. He would later say that he didn't find his relationship with Rose sexually gratifying anymore. Despite this realization, Rose and Keith remained married. When Keith lost his trucking job in 1986, the family had to move again, and Keith worked two part-time jobs before the family declared bankruptcy. He was eventually able to land another trucking job. While all of this was going on, Keith said he was too busy to indulge in his violent fantasies. But he soon felt that his sexual frustration needed a release. Keith met a couple named Bill and Ginny, who were swingers, while he was out on the road. Keith ended up having sex with Ginny, which was the first time he ever cheated on his wife. Keith began having sex with Ginny frequently while he was on the road, until she and Billy moved out of the area. After cheating on Rose, Keith began exploring more relationships outside of his marriage. He met a waitress named Peggy Jones at a truck stop. Keith lied to Peggy and told her that he wasn't married. Peggy herself was going through a divorce. The two took trips together when Keith was passing through. 
he said Peggy was the only woman he was with that could match his sexual appetite. After meeting Peggy, Keith decided he wanted a divorce and told Rose as much. The next trip he took, Rose left with the kids to live with her mother in Spokane, Washington. She decided she wanted everything in the divorce. In the summer of 1988, Keith was in a car accident and he lost his trucking job. He moved in with Peggy, despite being warned about her flirtatious nature with other men. Keith seemed to accept that Peggy was perpetually unfaithful. Because Keith was unable to drive for a while after his accident, he had Peggy apply to be a co-driver. But Keith soon realized this was a mistake because he couldn't rely on Peggy to drive, nor was she skilled when she did drive. Keith would later state that getting involved with Peggy was a mistake, and he regretted losing his family. On January 21st, 1990, Keith was drinking at a local bar called the B&I Tavern in Portland when he came across Tanya Bennett. Tanya was described as warm and pleasant, but she was also mentally disabled after her brain had been deprived of oxygen as a child. Keith invited Tanya to eat with him and then play pool. But he told her that he left his wallet at home, so he asked her to come along with him to get it. When they got to his house, which was actually Peggy's house, by the way, he kissed Tanya on the back of the neck. She tried to leave, but Keith wrestled her onto his mattress. Keith proceeded to beat Tanya, hitting her at least 20 times before strangling her. He had broken Tanya's nose and jaw. Keith left her body there and drove back to the bar to establish an alibi. He wanted to make sure people saw him leave the bar alone. Evidently, either Keith counted on people's faulty memories, or he completely ignored the fact that people could have seen Tanya leaving with him earlier that night. Keith later dumped Tanya's body in a ravine and then drove to a truck stop where he stayed until 8 a.m. He was again trying to establish an alibi for himself. He then drove three miles further to a spot where he dumped Tanya's purse. A few days later, a biker found Tanya's body. In a crazy stroke of luck for Keith, a couple who frequented the same bar Tanya was last seen at confessed to killing Tanya. The woman even led police to the exact location where Tanya's body was found. Because of both this and their confession, the couple was arrested and convicted of Tanya's murder. They were sentenced to 15 years to life in prison. It's not entirely clear to me why the couple confessed, but as we all know, people often confess to crimes they didn't commit. Because they confessed to Tanya's murder, Keith was able to continue raping and murdering women. Keith and Peggy had several more breakups and reconciliations in 1990, but things appeared to end for good when Peggy pulled the pregnancy card on Keith. He had his doubts as to the paternity given her flirty nature, and Peggy eventually made Keith move out of her house. After the two split, Keith moved to Sacramento, California for a brief period. While there, he picked up a woman named Jean and her baby. He forced Jean to perform oral sex on him. Keith later admitted he thought about killing Jean, but he didn't want to kill her baby, too. Apparently, this serial killer had his limits. Good on you, Keith, for knowing your boundaries. Jean had tried to run away, but Keith was somehow able to convince her to let him drive her and the baby back to town. 
But as soon as they arrived in town, Jean got the police involved. Ever the charmer, Keith was able to play off the situation as a simple misunderstanding. He told police he just regretted having sex with a married woman. Shortly after this incident with Jean, Keith reconciled with Peggy and took a trucking job that would allow him to be closer to his ex-wife Rose and their kids. He brought Peggy and her kids with him. Around this time, Keith was feeling butthurt that no one knew he killed Tanya Bennett, so he decided to write his confession on the bathroom wall of a bus stop in Portland. He signed his confession with a smiley face. Keith's next murder wouldn't come until late summer of 1992. Keith picked up a woman named Claudia, who said she needed a ride to L.A. Because this woman was a sex worker and Keith didn't have enough respect for women to remember the names of his victims, Claudia may or may not be accurate. Keith offered to drive Claudia to L.A., and as soon as she got into his truck, Keith kissed her. He made it very clear that he didn't pay for sex. Claudia refused to have sex with Keith which is totally understandable since he clearly wasn't going to pay her and she didn't owe him anything. But Keith took off her clothes anyway and repeatedly raped her. After he was done, Claudia asked Keith for drugs, but he told her he didn't do drugs, so she was out of luck. Yet another line serial killer Keith is unwilling to cross. Murder? Sure, why not? But drugs? Oh no. Claudia decided to use Keith's CB radio to ask other truckers in the area if they could hook her up with some heroin. Keith, being the bitch baby he was, got mad, so he gave Claudia $20 and basically told her to get lost. Claudia asked him for more money, and when Keith refused, she threatened to tell a nearby security guard that Keith had raped her. Well, that really pissed Keith off. Going back to his childhood views of women, any kind of insubordination from a woman, especially a woman whose profession and addiction he looked down upon, really set Keith off. So when Claudia made this threat, she had sealed her fate in Keith's mind. Keith locked the truck doors, took out duct tape, and taped both her arms and ankles in front of her. He punched Claudia in the side of the neck, rendering her unconscious. He taped her to his bed and raped her. A police car actually pulled into the same parking lot as all this was going on. As soon as the officers went in to eat at the diner, Keith pulled out of the parking lot and got back onto the highway. Claudia was somehow able to free herself while Keith was driving, but unfortunately for Claudia, Keith tied her up again and started choking her until she was unconscious. He began playing what he called a game of choking Claudia in and out of consciousness, getting increasingly aroused each time. After the fourth time, Claudia died. Keith fell asleep before he could dispose of Claudia's body, and when he woke up, a police car was parked in front of his truck. Claudia's body was hidden only by a blanket. Keith convinced the officer that he pulled his truck over because of tire issues. Evidently, this excuse satisfied the officer because he left without issuing a citation, ticket, or warning. Keith drove 10 miles further and dumped Claudia's body into a canyon off Highway 95 in the San Bernardino area. Unlike Tanya's body, which he had left exposed, Keith covered Claudia's body with tumbleweeds and she was hidden by bushes in the canyon. 
One month later, in October 1992, Keith met a woman named Cynthia Rose. Keith groped her, but told her he was too tired to have sex. He parked his truck to get some rest, but as soon as he turned off his truck, Cynthia hopped up into the passenger side of his truck. Keith was pissed. He felt disrespected by Cynthia, who blatantly ignored his request to let him sleep. Keith grabbed her by the neck, dragged her to his bed, and began choking her. He bound and gagged her while she was still alive, but after he drove away, Cynthia quickly died. Keith wasn't able to rape her, which pissed him off even more. He dumped her body at an empty way station after ripping the duct tape off her wrists and placing her body on some garbage near a tree in the corner of the parking lot. He again covered the body with tumbleweeds. After the murders of Claudia and Cynthia, Keith got paranoid about being caught. But as time went on and he realized he'd gotten away with the murders, including Tanya Bennett's murder, Keith became fearless. A month after Cynthia's murder, Keith used his CB radio to put a call out to a sex worker named Lori who frequented a Wilsonville rest stop. The two connected and Keith paid her for sex. Lori and Keith got into an argument about how much money he was going to pay her and Lori threatened to call the police. Of course, we know Keith doesn't take kindly to being threatened by sex workers. He forced Lori onto his bed and began choking her. He played the game where he brought Lori in and out of consciousness for over an hour before choking the life out of her. Keith groped her dead body and took $250 from her pockets before dumping her body in a parking lot covered with foliage and garbage. Following Lori's death, Keith had a four-month cooling-off period. During this time, no connection was made between the four murders. Each took place in a different jurisdiction, and the bodies were dumped in difficult-to-find locations. Not to mention, police thought Tanya Bennett's murder was solved because two people confessed and were serving time for her murder. As a truck driver, Keith had the perfect hunting ground and cover story. The cooling-off period would end in March 1993. Keith met a woman named Cindy in a diner. Keith, ever the sly dog, anonymously bought dinner for Cindy. She figured out what Keith had done fairly quickly, and the two went off and had sex. Keith then raped her before choking her in and out of consciousness five times before she died. He dumped her body and covered it with rocks and vegetation. Six months later, Keith met a woman named Julie Winningham at a truck stop. For some reason, he decided to take her with him on a road trip to Seattle and then Yakima. They spent the day together at a fairground, they partied, and they had sex. They spent a few more nights together before parting ways. According to at least one source, Keith and Julie dated for about a year after their initial meeting. During this time, Keith decided he'd write a letter to the Washington County Courthouse, which is located in Hillsborough, Oregon. He included details outlining where Tanya's body had been found, the exact injuries he'd inflicted on her, and the location where he threw her purse away. He signed the letter with a smiley face. When that letter didn't get any attention, Keith wrote a second letter in April 1994, this time to the media. Again, he got no response, so he decided to send 
another letter. Each letter contained the happy face signature. When Keith didn't get the attention he wanted from the media, he went on the prowl again. While in Florida in 1994, Keith picked up a woman named Suzanne who rode with him on his way to Georgia. She fell asleep and Keith started taking off her clothes. She woke up and started screaming, so Keith covered her mouth. She begged him to let her go, but instead, Keith raped her. Once she fell asleep again, Keith attempted to rape her once more, but this time, when she started screaming, Keith choked her to death. He hid her body in some bushes on the side of the road. For whatever reason, Keith decided to tie some nylon rope around Suzanne's neck prior to dumping her body. Keith didn't kill again until January 1995. After his truck spontaneously caught on fire, he was forced to stay in a hotel while it was being repaired. At the hotel, Keith met a stripper named Angela Sabrise. She spent the night with Keith and decided to go with him on his next trip. But Keith quickly tired of her as soon as he got the sense that she was only using him to chauffeur her around. When they were in Nebraska, Keith stopped at a truck stop and raped Angela. He felt slighted by her for using him, which must have been weighing on his mind because he started choking her. Once she was dead, Keith fondled her body before putting it in a plastic bag. Keith started getting paranoid that he was going to get caught. People saw him and Angela together, and she had used his credit card to make some collect calls. He called his trucking company to set up an alibi, and then, in what can only be described as a disgusting display of inhumanity, Keith decided the best thing to do was to tie Angela's body beneath the trailer of his truck in order to grind her face and fingerprints off. He drove 70 miles per hour and dragged Angela's body for 12 miles. When he stopped to check the body, Angela was missing a shoulder and a thigh, and her intestines and hands were all over the road. Keith took what was left of Angela's body and dumped it in a secluded bank about 50 feet from the road. Interestingly, Keith started having suicidal thoughts after Angela died. He would later tell people he thought about suicide after Tanya Bennett's murder as well. It's hard for me to decide how to take these comments. On the one hand, I think whenever someone mentions suicide, red flags should go up and that person should get the help that they need. But on the other hand, in Keith's case, it seems like he brought up suicide only as a way to get more attention and or to avoid the consequences of his actions. It's really hard to feel bad for someone like that. The way he treated Angela and her body was particularly disgusting, and he should feel bad for doing that to another human being. In March 1995, Keith met up with his ex-girlfriend, Julie Winningham. She asked Keith for money to pay off a fine, and she drunkenly proposed to Keith. Keith later said he'd felt fallen back in love with Julie, but she began asking him for more and more money, and Keith began to feel used. Julie even tried to blackmail Keith. Knowing what we know about Keith, this would not end well for Julie. Keith choked her until she passed out and bound her hands behind her back, tied her ankles together with duct tape, and covered her mouth with duct tape. Keith raped Julie, blindfolded her, and told her about all the other women he'd murdered. He raped Julie one more time before strangling her to death. Keith dumped Julie's body off Highway 14 in Oregon 
near where he dumped Tanya Bennett's body five years earlier. He thought about moving her body since he figured he'd be the prime suspect, but he never ended up doing it. He seemed to accept that he'd eventually be caught, but he still became extremely paranoid after Julie's murder. He was even more suspicious when police began checking his ID at the state borders, and his trucking jobs became more and more scarce. Keith didn't know it at the time, but his employer was actually working with the police, and they arranged a fake pickup in an attempt to apprehend Keith. Keith drove to the pickup site, and he was immediately surrounded by police, and told that he was wanted in connection with the death of Julie Winningham. They told Keith that Julie's body was found the day after she was murdered. Keith instantly regretted not moving her body when he had the chance. Clark County investigators interrogated Keith for five hours, but eventually had to let him go due to a lack of evidence. But they did take hair and blood samples from Keith. Keith knew time was running out and police were closing in. It was only a matter of time before he'd be arrested for murder. He tried to overdose by taking a bunch of pills, which didn't work. He also wrote a confession letter to one of his brothers. Then, he called the arresting officers and confessed to Julie's murder. Keith tried to ask his brother to destroy the confession letter, but his brother had already turned it over to the police. In the letter, Keith had not only confessed to Julie's murder, but to the seven other murders as well. Keith was found guilty of eight counts of murder and sentenced to three consecutive life sentences. He originally served his time in Oregon, but was extradited to California in 2009 to face additional murder charges. He received an additional life sentence in 2010. He remains in prison today, though it's not entirely clear to me from my research whether that was in Oregon or California. I got some conflicting reports that he was still in California, but I also saw some places say that he is still in the Oregon State Penitentiary in Salem, Oregon. And that is the twisted tale of the happy face killer, Keith Hunter Jesperson. Let me know what you think on the social media posts for this episode, or head over to our Facebook group. You can find it by searching True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. Winston and I thank you for listening to today's episode. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com and you can find us on Twitter at truecrimecatlaw and on Instagram at truecrimecatlawyer. You can also find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. If you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at winstonthecatpdx. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.